everyone. My name is Dr. Michael Nowak, and today I'll be reading part five, or the last part of cardiology textbook excerpts on the approach to cardiac disease diagnosis that may be mixed with a few commentaries and explanations. Let's begin. Diagnostic studies number four, other cardiac imaging. Letter A, chest radiography. Chest radiography is used infrequently now for evaluating cardiac structural abnormalities because of the superiority of echocardiography in this regard. The chest radiograph, however, is a rapid, inexpensive way to assess pulmonary anatomy and is very useful for evaluating pulmonary venous congestion and hypoperfusion or hyperperfusion. In addition, Abnormalities of the thoracic skeleton are found in certain cardiac disorders, and radiographic corroboration may help with the diagnosis. Detection of intracardiac calcium deposits by the radiograph or fluoroscopy is of some value in finding coronary artery, valvular, or pericardial disease. Other cardiac imaging letter B. Computed tomographic scanning. Computed tomography, also called CT, has been applied to cardiac imaging by using EKG gating to account for the motion of the heart. The major application of this technology has been the detection of small amounts of coronary artery calcium as an indicator for atherosclerosis in the coronary arterial tree. With the development of multi-detector CT and using intravenous contrast agents, Non-invasive coronary angiography is possible and has a high negative predictive value for detecting significant coronary artery abnormalities, including stenosis, anomalous origin, and aneurysms. High-risk coronary artery plaque features can also be identified. In addition, CT can delineate pericardial disease such as calcification in cysts, although complex effusions and masses are better assessed by magnetic resonance imaging. With retrospective gating, cardiac function and valve excursion can be assessed. CT provides valuable anatomic information for procedural screening and planning. It can be used to delineate the left atrial appendage morphology and pulmonary vein anatomy prior to atrial fibrillation ablation. CT can evaluate the vascular access prior to transcatheter procedures such as transcatheter aortic valve replacement and mitral valve repair techniques by determining the degree of peripheral artery disease and calcification. CT can also provide anatomic information regarding the valves when poor acoustic windows or heavy calcification limit visualization of valve anatomy and echocardiography. Hybrid PET or nuclear SPECT plus CT scanners are now available and can provide anatomic anatomic perfusion and viability data. CT scanning is also very useful for detecting other potential causes of chest pain, including dissection of the aorta or coronary artery, pulmonary embolism, or pericardial disease. Other cardiac imaging letter C, magnetic resonance imaging. Magnetic resonance imaging, also called MRI, 
has improved dramatically over the past decade and is now increasingly used at academic and community centers. It can provide a comprehensive range of information including cardiac morphology, tissue composition, wall function, chamber volumes, blood flow, and myocardial perfusion. An advantage of MRI is the absence of exposure to radiation or iodinated intravenous contrast. Because images can be acquired through any tomographic plane, it is helpful for evaluating patients with poor quality echocardiograms due to limited acoustic windows. Non-iodinated gadolinium-based contrast agents can be injected intravenously to enhance MRI when assessing for infiltrative diseases such as cardiac amyloidosis, where there are areas of late gadolinium enhancement, also called LGE. It is helpful for distinguishing between ischemic and non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, as well as identifying the presence of myocarditis, parentheses acute slash subacute, or chronic, end parentheses. Late gadolinium enhancement also allows for identification of myocardial scar, which can be targeted for ablation to treat atrial or ventricular arrhythmias. In addition, late gadolinium enhancement is seen in regions of infarcted tissue in patients with coronary artery disease. Myocardial perfusion imaging with MRI can be performed with gadolinium-based contrast agents and vasodilators, such as adenosine oregadenosone, or dibutamine to evaluate perfusion reserve and assess for microvascular disease. In this setting, late gadolinium enhancement can be used to distinguish between normal, infarcted, and ischemic myocardium in patients with coronary artery disease. Late gadolinium enhancement can also provide important prognostic information regarding patients with a variety of pathologies, including infiltrative disease, cardiomyopathies, and ischemic heart disease. Magnetic resonance angiography with gadolinium-based contrast allows visualization of arterial and venous connections and can be used to assess structures such as the ascending and or descending aorta, peripheral vasculature, and pulmonary veins. Chamber volumes, wall function, blood flow, and valve morphologies can be evaluated without the use of contrast agents. MRI is a versatile tool useful in a wide array of patients, including those with heart failure, cardiomyopathies, cardiac masses, infiltrative processes, valve diseases, and congenital heart disease. The major limitations of cardiac MRI at this time include the length of the studies, their cost, and the relative non-availability of magnetic resonance systems in acute patient care areas compared with CT. Lastly, care must be taken to avoid imaging patients with certain implanted devices with ferromagnetic properties. Other cardiac imaging number five, stress testing. Stress testing in various forms is most frequently applied in cases of suspected or overt ischemic heart disease. Because ischemia represents an imbalance between myocardial oxygen supply and demand, 
Exercise or pharmacologic stress increases myocardial oxygen demand and reveals an inadequate oxygen supply, also called hypoperfusion, in diseased coronary arteries. Stress testing can thus induce detectable ischemia in patients with no evidence of ischemia at rest. It can also be used to determine cardiac reserve in patients with valvular and myocardial disease. Deterioration of left ventricular performance during exercise or other stresses suggests a diminution of cardiac reserve that would have therapeutic and prognostic implications. In addition, exercise testing can be used to detect the development of pulmonary hypertension with exercise. Although most stress test studies use some technique for directly assessing the heart, it is important not to forget that the symptoms of angina pectoris, extreme dyspnea, lightheadedness, or syncope can be equally important in evaluating patients. Physical findings, such as the development of pulmonary rails, ventricular gallops, murmurs, peripheral cyanosis, hypotension, excessive increase in heart rate, or inappropriate decreases in heart rate also have diagnostic and prognostic value. It is therefore important that a symptom assessment and physical examination always be done before, during, and after stress testing. Electrocardiographic monitoring is the most common cardiac evaluation technique used during stress testing. It should be part of every stress test in order to assess heart rate and detect any arrhythmias. In patients with normal resting EKGs, diagnostic ST depression of myocardial ischemia has a fairly high sensitivity and specificity for detecting coronary artery disease in symptomatic patients if adequate stress is achieved, parentheses, peak heart rate at least 85% of the patient's maximum predicted rate based on age and sex, end parentheses. Exercise EKG testing is an excellent low-cost screening procedure for patients with chest pain consistent with coronary artery disease, normal resting EKGs, and the ability to exercise to maximal levels. A myocardial imaging technique is usually added to the exercise evaluation in patients whose EKGs are abnormal or, for some reason, less accurate. It is also used for determining the location and extent of myocardial ischemia in patients with well-known coronary artery disease. Imaging techniques in general enhance the sensitivity and specificity of the tests, but are still not perfect, with false positive and false negative results occurring in 5-10% to of patients. Echocardiographic imaging, in particular, can assess the severity of valvular regurgitation and exercise-induced pulmonary hypertension, which can be helpful in evaluating patients with valvular heart disease. Finally, cardiopulmonary exercise testing is used to measure maximum oxygen uptake, which is of prognostic value in systemic heart failure patients. Which adjunctive myocardial imaging technology to choose depends on the quality of the tests, their availability and cost, and the services provided by the laboratory. If these are all equal, the decision should be based on patient characteristics. For example, echocardiography might be appropriate when ischemia is suspected of developing during exercise 
and is profound enough to depress segmental left ventricular performance or worsen mitral regurgitation. On the other hand, perfusion scanning might be the best test to determine which coronary artery is producing the symptoms in a patient with known three-vessel coronary artery disease and recurrent angina after revascularization. Choosing the appropriate form of stress is also important. Exercise, the preferred stress for increasing myocardial oxygen demand, also simulates the patient's normal daily activities and is therefore highly relevant clinically. There are essentially only two reasons for not choosing exercise stress. However, the patient's inability to exercise adequately because of physical or psychological limitations or the known superiority of pharmacologic stress in certain situations such as the presence of left bundle branch block. Other cardiac imaging number six, cardiac catheterization. Cardiac catheterization is now mainly used for the assessment of coronary artery anatomy by coronary angiography. In fact, the cardiac catheterization laboratory has become more of a therapeutic than a diagnostic arena. Once significant coronary artery disease is identified, a variety of catheter-based interventions can be used to alleviate the obstruction to blood flow in the coronary arteries. At one time, hemodynamic measurements, parentheses, pressure, flow, oxygen consumption, end parentheses, were necessary to accurately diagnose and quantitate the severity of valvular heart disease and intracardiac shunts. Currently, Doppler echocardiography has taken over this role almost completely, except in a few instances when Doppler studies are inadequate or believed to be inaccurate. Catheter-based hemodynamic assessments are still useful for differentiating cardiac constriction from restriction despite advances in Doppler echocardiography. Currently, the catheterization laboratory is also more often used as a treatment arena for valvular and congenital heart disease. Certain stenotic valvular and arterial lesions can be treated successfully with catheter-delivered balloon expansion, the deployment of stents, or stent-mounted bioprosthetic valves. Congenitally, and acquired shunts can also be closed by catheter-delivered devices. Myocardial biopsy is necessary to treat patients with heart transplants and is occasionally used to diagnose selected cases of suspected acute myocarditis. For this purpose, a bioptome is usually placed in the right heart and several small pieces of myocardium are removed. Although this technique is relatively safe, myocardial perfusion can occur. Other cardiac imaging number seven, electrophysiologic testing. Electrophysiologic testing uses catheter-delivered electrodes in the heart to induce rhythm disorders and detect their structural basis. Certain arrhythmia foci and structural abnormalities that facilitate rhythm disturbances can be treated by catheter-delivered radiofrequency energy, also called ablation, or by the placement of various electronic devices that monitor rhythm disturbances and treat them accordingly. 
through either pacing or internally delivered defibrillation shocks. Electrophysiologic testing and treatment now dominate the management of arrhythmias. The test is more accurate than the surface EKG for diagnosing many arrhythmias and detecting their substrate. And catheter ablation and electronic devices have been more successful than pharmacologic approaches at treating arrhythmias. Other cardiac imaging number eight, test selection. In the current era of escalating healthcare costs, ordering multiple tests is rarely justifiable and the physician, PA or NP, must pick the one test that will be best to define the patient's problem. Unfortunately, cardiology offers multiple competing technologies that often address the same issues but in a different way. The following five principles should be followed when considering which test to order. Number one, what information is desired? If the test is not reasonably likely to provide the type of information needed to help the patient's problem, it should not be done, no matter how inexpensive and easy it is to obtain. At one time, for example, routine preoperative EKGs were done prior to major non-cardiac surgery to detect which patients might be at risk for cardiac events in the perioperative period. Once it was determined that the resting EKG was not good at this, the practice was discontinued despite its low cost and ready availability. Number two, what is the cost of the test? If two tests can provide the same information and one is much more expensive than the other, the less expensive test should be ordered. For example, to determine whether a patient's remote history of prolonged cardiac chest pain was a myocardial infarction, the physician, PA, and NP has a choice of an EKG or one of the several imaging tests such as echocardiography, resting thallium 201 scintiography, and the like. Because the EKG is the least expensive test, it should be performed for this purpose in most situations. Number three, is the test available? Sometimes the best test for the patient is not available in the given facility. If it is available at a nearby facility and the patient can go there without undue cost, the test should be obtained. If expensive travels are required, the cost and benefits of that test versus local alternatives need to be carefully considered. Number four, what is the level of expertise of the laboratory and the physician, PA or NP, who interprets the test. For many of the high technology imaging tests, the level of expertise considerably affects the value of the test. Myocardial perfusion imaging is a classic example of this. Some laboratories are superlative in producing tests of diagnostic accuracy. In others, the number of false positive and false negative results is so high that the tests are rendered almost worthless. Therefore, even though a given test may be available and inexpensive and could theoretically provide essential information, if the quality of the laboratory is not good, an alternative test should be sought. Number five, what quality of service is provided by the laboratory? 
Patients are customers and they need to be satisfied. If a laboratory makes patients wait a long time, if it is, a tar- if it is tardy in getting the results to the physician, PA and NP, or if great delays occur in accomplishing the test, choose an alternate laboratory, parentheses assuming, of course, that alternates are available, end parentheses. Poor services cannot be tolerated. Many other situations and considerations affect the choice of tests. For example, a 50-year-old man with incapacitating angina might have a high likelihood of having single-vessel disease that would be amenable to catheter-based revascularization. It might be prudent to take this patient directly to coronary arteriography with an eye toward diagnosing and treating the patient's disease in one setting for maximum cost effectiveness. This approach, however, presents the risk of ordering an expensive catheterization rather than a less expensive non-invasive test if the patient does not have significant coronary disease. Physicians, PAs, and NPs are frequently solicited to use the latest emerging technologies which often have not been proved better than the standard techniques. It is generally unwise to begin using these unusually more expensive methods until clinical trials have established their efficacy and cost effectiveness. Thank you very much for listening to today's podcast, part five, and the last part of cardiology textbook excerpts on the approach to cardiac disease diagnosis. My name is Dr. Michael Nowak, and please check out our other podcast by Certified Medical Educators. Have a great day.